0: Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal.
1: I am super excited for this conversation today, my chickens, because I think that The term self-care is a term that we just have seen like become so kind of watered down and used in so many different ways that nobody even really knows what it is anymore. And one of the challenges that I've always kind of had with the concept of self-care is the way that I think patriarchy teaches women to see a lot of things as self-care that are actually just Like grooming and molding their bodies into what society considers fuckable shape, (laughs) which is not what I call self care. So, we're going to be really digging into that with today's guest. But before we get to that, I want to tell you something about what I consider real self care, which is learning how to change your thinking and learning how to change the thought patterns that patriarchy has taught you that are really holding you back. So, every about six months, once or twice a year, I run a challenge. And these are five-day experiences with me that are really accessible and affordable ways to try out thought work a little more deeply than you can just from listening to the podcast. We've done a couple of different topics in the past, and I always end up kind of building on them and improving and changing them. And this time around, we are doing the stop second guessing yourself challenge. Because the more that I talk to and work with women, and as I've been working on my book, and like, really stepping back and looking at my body of work and what my core message is, one of the ways that these patriarchal socializations show up the most is women constantly second guessing themselves. And that is a kind of thought pattern that shows up in every area of your life, like across the board, second-guessing whether somebody likes you or not, second-guessing whether you like somebody or not, right? Second-guessing whether you should go on a third date with somebody that you feel like you don't even like, second-guessing whether or not that person was harassing you or being sexist or being racist or being fatphobic, second-guessing whether or not you should apply for that new job, second-guessing how you wrote the email, asking for a meeting with your boss, second-guessing what you ate for lunch, right? It's just, it's fucking constant. And it's such a goddamn waste of human potential to spend all of your time second guessing yourself and doubting every move you make. I'm over that shit. (laughs) I'm over it for myself. I'm over it for you. And I want more and better than that for you and for myself. So I'm always teaching stuff that like I also need to hear. So we are going to be doing the stop second guessing yourself challenge. This is a topic that i feel like really encapsulates so much of what i have learned for myself and been able to teach others and i also see how deep it goes like even if you feel like you're a confident feminist which i do i can guarantee there's places you're still second guessing yourself i still see it in myself even though i've come so so far in trusting myself as a woman as a business owner as a partner as a you know bonus parent <laughs> as just a human. So we are going to really be covering how to stop validation seeking, like looking for other people to approve of you and your decisions and like confirm for you everything you do. We're going to work on how to stop people pleasing, right? Which is like putting other people's opinions and thoughts and feelings ahead of your own all the time in a detrimental way. And learning how to make strong decisions and how to trust yourself, right? How to make Decisions and trust yourself so that you can make big moves in your life or honestly make small moves in your life, like make any move in your life, as opposed to just staying stuck and trying to conform to what society tells you. We are going to be doing this April 17th to April 21st. So it's just five days together. It is only $37, which in New York right now is about the cost of lunch for one. Where you live, maybe it's lunch for two, but it is 100% worth it to pack your lunch this week and do this challenge instead because you are going to get five days with me live where we're going to be teaching, learning, we're going to be coaching a little bit, I'm going to be answering questions, and I'm going to be really showing you what happens when you kind of, in reading, you would say like, take it off the page if it was written into real life. So with the podcast, it's like, take it out of just your ears. (laughs) <laughs> and into your life. So here's how you can join. You can text your email address to plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. That's plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. You'll get a prompt asking you for the code word, and the code word is trust, just the word trust, or you can go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash trust. So If you have second-guessed yourself in the last day, week, hour, month, possibly the last five minutes, this is for you. And if you've just been curious about what coaching is like, what it's like to work with me, what happens inside The Clutch, my feminist coaching community and program, this is like a teaser. It's a taster. And it's less than half of the investment of even just one month in The Clutch. So, It is the most accessible way to work with me. And if even $37 is not accessible to you, there is a link with information about how to get access at a reduced or scholarship rate on the information page. So I got you. All right. Unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash trust or text your email to plus one, three, four, seven, nine, nine, seven, one, seven, eight, four. So Learning how to stop second guessing yourself, definitely part of real self-care. And now let's get into the other aspects of that with today's amazing guest. All right, my chickens. I am super excited for this conversation today because I think it's one that we all need. And you all know how I feel about kind of the wellness industry telling you that the key to true like self-care and self, you know, empowerment is like paying money to be groomed for patriarchal beauty standards. So my chickens have heard me rant about that quite a bit. It's totally fine. Listen, I did my hair today. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that, but my this is not how I empower myself. So we are going to be talking to Dr. Pooja Lakshman, who is an expert on self-care, but has a really important take on it. And as you all know, I was just saying to Dr. Pooja that I like to let my guests introduce themselves because I feel like it's so socially acceptable for women to like sit quietly while someone else praises them. And I think women should get on this podcast and be like, I'm a fucking badass. Listen to all this shit about me. So please tell us who you are and what you do and how we got here.
0: (laughs) Well, Cara, I am so excited to be here. And yeah, I am Dr. Pooja Lakshman. I am a psychiatrist specializing in women's mental health. So if we're talking about women's empowerment, I will say I have an MD. I went to medical school. (laughs) You know, I have all the credentials. Unlike Um, some of us. (laughs) Well, you know, and we can talk about my personal story too, which I think is just as important. But so I'm a psychiatrist. And so I see patients two days a week right now. Mm -hmm. And all of my patients are women and they live and work in Washington, D.C. Although during the pandemic, I moved to Austin, Texas. But so it's a very like my patients are basically, you know, all of your little chickens in your audience Mm -hmm. who are like high achieving, perfectionistic, you know, boss ladies Mm -hmm. who are doing all the things and really struggling. Not that we would know anything about that. No,
1: I um, always say I'm a perfect example of pure mental health that everyone can <laughs> aspire to. <laughs> right, right. Or an example um, of what to do with a half managed mind, as I try to describe
0: <laughs> myself. So I see patients two days a week. And then I also am a writer for the New York Times. So folks might know me from some of my New York Times writing. I wrote a piece called This is Betrayal, Not Burnout During the Pandemic. So a lot of my, I call all of that my advocacy work, because I can only see so many people one-on-one as a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And so I I went on social media a couple of years ago, started this professional account, to really help educate sort of because there's just so much crap out there, right? And so we need people that are actual experts and people that are you know, willing to kind of call things out. So I write for the New York Times and the founder and CEO of a women's mental health platform called Gemma that I founded with two other psychiatrists, friends, colleagues. And I have a book that I wrote that's called Real Self-Care, Crystals, Cleanses, and Bubble Baths Not Included. Oh my God, and so <laughs> stuff I love. I knew the first title, but I don't think I'd seen the subtitle,
1: which I just I love so much.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'm just really excited to be here to kind of pull back the curtain on what we're calling self care and share a little bit about what I think it really is, and just kind of dive into how, especially if you're somebody who has tried all the things and still feels like you're just kind of drowning, what you can do instead.
1: Yeah, I love it. Okay, so let's just start with what is. How would you define self care?
0: So real self-care. Yes, the real one, not the yes. Yes. Real self-care is an internal decision-making process that is threaded through every single big choice that you make in your life. So real self-care is something that you practice when you're deciding who your life partner is, Mm -hmm. what type of career you're going to have, whether or not you want to have children. How you show up in your friendships and in your relationships, right? It's actually an internal process of making really hard choices about how you spend your time and what you give your energy to. And that is something that is also applicable to every single season in your life. It's not just something that you cross off once and done. So in the book, I share four principles. You know, my whole shtick is very psychiatrist. Like mm-hmm. I can't tell you the answer, right? Because right. everybody's answer for what is real They're self-care is different, right? Right. Totally. right. Exactly. Exactly. And the thing is that I think in a lot of self-help, and I'm interested in your take on this too, Kara. like in a lot of self-help, I think people come to us because they really want an answer, right? They really want to know, well, okay, Pooja, fine. But like, what do I do? what do I actually do right now? And that's what people think
1: life coaches do. Like when I tell somebody who doesn't know about life coaching, what I do they're like, oh, you tell people what to do. And I'm like, no, literally the opposite. I've never told somebody what to, I mean, I tell my partner what to do sometimes, but I've never told a (laughs) client what to do in their lives. But wait, let's back up. This is also important. And I want to touch, like dig deeper into something you said earlier before we get to this part. So the thing that I love about what you said about being threaded through your life and these big decisions and like, your, who your life partner is, even if you want a life partner, even yes, if you want yes. to be single, right? Is that it's proactive, right? I think so many women think about self care as like it's like a cycle of I burn myself out with social expectations and self imposed pressure and you know externally imposed pressure, but like I get burned out, then I do a little self care so that I don't like lose my mind, then I burn myself out again, then I do a little right. self care. It's like it's sort of similar to one of the examples I often give for why you should change your thinking is that. When people do things like, like I have a friend in my life who uses exercise to manage her stress, there's beneficial effects of exercise on stress for sure. But obviously if you never change your thought pattern or your circumstances, you just create the stress, you exercise to release it. Then you create the stress again, then you exercise to release it. And it's like, you're not building more resiliency really. And then like, you know, if, if like my friend, you sprain your ankle one day, now you have zero tools. You don't know how to deal with it at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like Mm -hmm. like the drug that you used is not available anymore. And now what are you going to do? And I think that what you're saying is so important because we treat self-care in the same way. It's like this pressure valve of like, oh, I really feel like I'm going to lose it. So I'll go get a massage, which is fine. I love massages, but as opposed to like, wait, this is actually has to be part of how I make proactive decisions about my life. Right. And I'm not just reacting to whatever happens to me. That yes. feels like a very important piece of this.
0: Yes. And so, you know, what you just touched on, so in the book, I kind of differentiate between faux self-care, mm-hmm. like the massages and sort of these different methods that you're describing that we end up using just as an escape valve or a pressure mm-hmm. valve, right? Which is, it's not that it's bad, right? You end up needing that escape, right? Because you feel like you're drowning. But one of the differentiators that I talk about is that... Faux self care always keeps the status quo going in your relationships, whereas real self care is going to cause small shifts or maybe big shifts, right, in your relationships and in what people expect of you. And that's how we get to actual systemic change because the whole thing, you know, the perfect example is the patient that comes in and is like, okay, Dr. Lakshman, you know, I'm stressed out, I'm burnt out, I'm not eating well, I'm not sleeping well. Right. And I feel like it's my fault because I have this meditation app on my phone that I know I'm supposed to be using, (laughs) but I just can't bring myself to use it. And I'm just like, well, one, it's not your fault. Like you can't meditate your way out of a 40 hour work week with no child care, without access to good health insurance, Right. right? Without equal pay, right? These are all systemic issues. But when we sort of use... These faux solutions, whether it's the massage, whether it's like the wellness retreat, Mm -hmm. it's a Band-Aid and it just keeps you still in that same cycle. Not to demonize the Band-Aid because there are times that we all need it for sure, but you have to then be able to understand like, okay, I took that time out and now I need to come back and do the strategic internal work of Mm -hmm. having to make really hard choices in my life so I'm not constantly stuck in the cycle like like you're talking about. paths, threads from this, one, <laughs> but I'm just going to try to pick two. Okay. Yes.
1: So in a minute, I want to talk about systemic versus personal, but yes. one of the things I want to say about this and the, and the aid, the massage, the whatever, I actually think those things are wonderful, but the whole reason we call them self-care is that women are socialized to never feel like they're entitled to use their own time or their own money to do anything or to relax. Right. So yeah. I, I actually think that like the whole reason that we're like, Oh, a massage is self-care is like That is a label that makes us feel somewhat like it's okay. It's like, oh, I'm putting on Mm -hmm. my own oxygen mask, Mm -hmm. or I do like, as opposed to just being like, I want to get a fucking massage. It feels good. I'm allowed (laughs) to spend my money to do that. I'm allowed to ask my partner or my mother or whoever to watch the kids for an hour. Like, it's almost like self care. I think the reason that, like, it's not that you need to give up doing those things, it's like, we don't even need to be calling those self care. Like, that's a cover story in some ways for like, it gives us a sort of rationale. It's like self-care has become one of the acceptable things for people yeah. to do. And so that like validates the fact that maybe we just sometimes want to massage or just want to watch you, whatever it is that you feel guilty doing otherwise. And this gives you like a justification framework.
0: But I want to well, talk- I'd And if I can more. pull on that thread, yeah, yeah. if it's okay, I have a feeling this <laughs> we're gonna conversation, we're just going to be, yeah. Well, I think part of what you're talking about too is because for women, we're conditioned to put our power- in others, right? Mm-hmm. So we're constantly looking sort of for, for permission for mm-hmm. someone else to say, like, this is the right thing. Mm-hmm. So if when you call it self-care, it is sort of cover that you're able to say to your partner, Well, like I'm supposed to be doing self-care, you know, mm-hmm. like we listened to that podcast together. Right, right. <laughs> and right, that right. expert said, right. And where is actually taking ownership? of your choices and your time yeah. and saying for yourself, no, like this is something that I really like. This is something that's important to me. And like, I'm going to go do it. Right. right and that so is hard, a lot more like
1: women uncomfortable have so much trouble with that. Totally. And yeah. it's much easier to be like, and we have trouble saying that much less being like, actually, I want to sit down and renegotiate the terms of this whole marriage. Yeah. Right? Actually, I want to sit down and renegotiate how we take care of the house and the kids. Actually, I want a divorce or whatever it is like, yeah, just it's hard enough for us to be like, I want to go get a massage. Right. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, it feels like this should be like the end of the podcast, but since it came up, I want to talk about (laughs) it, which is this relationship between the individual and the systemic, right? So like you're dealing with systemic issues, like maybe you don't have access to affordable childcare, maybe you don't have access to healthcare, right? And I know my students have heard my shtick about this endlessly about the relationship between individual empowerment and social change, but I'd love to hear your perspective on it and how that Works with self care.
0: Yeah. So, my perspective on the personal and the systemic really comes from my own life experience. So, you know, at this point, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm 39 years old, I have this sort of professional life. But about a decade ago, when I was in my late 20s, I basically blew up my life. At that point, I had done all the things that a good Indian girl was supposed to do. I went to the Ivy League College. You know, I became a doctor. I got married. You're a good Jewish girl. I went through the process too on the lawyer side. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you understand. And about two years into my psychiatry residency, I was totally burnt out. I was also just really disillusioned because it was sort of like, okay, I checked all the boxes. And for the first time in my life, I was like, okay, well let let me try to be happy now. (laughs) Right. Right. And and that was a failure, right? Because my whole (laughs) life was built on everyone else's values, right? Right, Not my own. And then I was training to become a psychiatrist and I was seeing all these inconsistencies in mainstream medicine. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, somebody comes in, a patient comes into the ER And they're unhoused and it's like, okay, I can give you Zoloft, I can do therapy, but like what you really need is housing or, you know, a woman- Meanwhile,
1: you're being seen by a resident who hasn't slept
0: in like 60 hours. (laughs)
1: Right, right.
0: Like that's a totally fine way to do medicine. Right, right. So obviously like, you know, the American medical system is just a complete cluster-
1: Fuck. Okay. Am I yeah, allowed to we, say that? Great. It's on fuck your brain. We can curse okay. here. We're okay. Just... Great.
0: Great. Yes. The entire medical system is a clusterfuck. So I was like questioning all these things yeah. and also burnt out. And so I, I left my marriage. I moved into mm-hmm. a commune in San Francisco that studied female orgasm, meditation, spirituality. Pretty soon after that, I dropped out of my residency program. Mm-hmm. So everybody in my life was just like, oh my God, what's happening to Pooja? Mm-hmm. And I spent two years with this group. And ultimately, by the end of it, I left really heartbroken, but also understanding that, yes, the system is totally broken, but setting your life on fire doesn't actually fix the problem. Mm -hmm. Like you still have to do your own really hard work in your own life. And when you sort of make just a big dramatic change to try and escape really right. everything right. because everything feels like it's terrible or on fire you change all your circumstances but then right your brain's but going you're you. still the same person right. and yes. and especially in the wellness world i know you talk about this a lot there's just as many hypocrisies and inconsistencies yeah. as there are in mainstream medicine unfortunately there's not any quick fix solution there yeah. just isn't anybody who's telling you like here are these set of rules to follow. Here's this new juice cleanse. Here's this exercise plan. Like it might work for a couple of weeks, right? But the actual sustainable change is something that is really hard and is something that's going to take a long time. So that was kind of my personal experience. And then of course I saw, you know, once I came back to medicine, built my practice, some more and more patients coming in talking about, you know, like the vaginal jade eggs and like just all the things. And, You know, I think like my take is that when the solution is commercial, Mm -hmm. when the solution is a bubble bath, we have no chance of changing the larger systems. But when the solution is personal, we have a fighting chance. You know, I tell a story in the book of a patient of mine who went through the real self-care process and that led her to having really hard conversations with her husband who then finally on their third baby Asked for a paternity leave. He had never taken a paternity leave and got it. Right. And so then that change at his workplace impacted every other employee that came through. You know, my patient wasn't trying to be an activist or an advocate. She's just trying to not hate her husband and not get divorced. (laughs) Right. Right. And but so, but that's when I talk about real self care, that's what I mean. I can't give you exactly the answer to what that looks like in your life, but every single woman has something in their life that if you take personal action, if you show up in your relationships differently, if you start setting boundaries, if you start treating yourself with compassion, if you understand that you actually have power and agency, things are going to shift in your own life. And then that's going to cause change in your family, in your workplace, in other systems.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is what I say all the time is like, who do you think is making the social change? It's human with human brains. Like it's not... I mean, I come from the social justice world. So I went to law school as a reproductive rights litigator. And then I was a reproductive rights academic and, you know, and like, I think there's this sort of story that sort of self-help or self-development is like, like self-absorbed or selfish or just for privileged people or navel gaze. I'm just like, you're completely misunderstanding what this is about and the power of this work. Like everybody who's ever changed the world had a different brain than the other people around them, right? They were thinking in a different way. They were like, wait a minute. I don't think the status quo does have to be this way. I don't think it's true that I am inferior or that, you know, we shouldn't be allowed to learn to read or wear pants or vote or whatever other kind of social change you're trying to create. Right. So, I mean, I'd love that story that you truly just burned down your whole life and you're like, oh shit, my brain came with me. Like, <laughs> and that's so true. Right. I mean, I, you know, in a, I, my burn down was less dramatic, but I, you know, like quit my career right before I was about to become a law professor and was like, I'm gonna be a life coach on the internet instead. And I'm glad I did that. <laughs> you know, I actually think my parents were equally concerned as if I had to, get to a San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, I mean cult. I can like, imagine was, right, right. It's... That was pretty much equivalent as far as they were concerned. Yes, Those would be yes. the same decision. Yes. At the time. They're supportive now. But it was the same thing. Like, yeah, I'm glad I made that decision. Obviously, the different circumstance was maybe a better fit for me. But my brain came with me. I still had to do all that same work. So I just love that you like took it all the way. You're like, oh, I'm
0: going to change my life. <laughs> I'm going to go as far as I can. I absolutely love what you just said, Kara. Because you know, I feel like we're like spirit friends. We've never met before for folks that are listening. But <laughs> this life is like Tilly. In a way. yes. Well, and also I think. Like part of the thing when I was writing Real Self-Care is I also wanted to kind of redefine self-help in some ways. Because I think because self-help is such a female, right, predominantly- For men, it's philosophy.
1: Men are like, what are my thoughts about the world I had in the bath? They are not universal laws of nature. I saw like that once, and I was like, oh my God, yes. But women, it's like, oh, you want to know like, why are we here and what should we do about it? What a cute female question. That's self-help.
0: Right, like here's the style section, right? Mm. But the reality is that you know, you have the people that are, you know, in the political space or in the law space or in the big think space that are like trying to quote unquote, solve all the problems mm-hmm. and they're turning their nose up at the personal development work, mm-hmm. but they are so
1: burnt out. Also, they are the so burnt out and cynical. Also the whole self-help is that people aren't solving the bigger problems. <laughs> exactly. Like, the whole point of self-help is you're like, oh, I don't think society is going to help me. I better fucking help myself. Right. Like that's and the so, beginning of know, every revolutionary movement.
0: And I think that there needs to be like a circle here. There needs yeah. to be a connection. And absolutely, every single person, you know, I think like Shannon Watts story from Mom's Demand for mm-hmm. Gun Violence, right, is like a perfect example. And, you know, I quote Audrey Lorde and like a zillion times through the book, you know, a lot of this, obviously, self-care as self-preservation comes from Black women, mm-hmm. Black queer women, Right. But every single person who has done anything in the social justice space, like you're saying, has a different brain, is there because they've had some sort of moment where they've realized, like, actually, I need to fight for my own self. I need to fight for myself in my own life. And then they realized that they wanted to do that for other Mm -hmm. people. But. You know, I think it's interesting because it also we see it in our own, like it doesn't need to be big and shiny and fancy and like, you know, start it, blow up your life, start a nonprofit. Like it actually like happens just in our social lives, in our communities, right? It's that person who you admire, right? That person, that friend who actually does set boundaries and says what she's going to do, does what she says she's going to do. And has her own internal compass, right? With how she's living her life. And that is just as powerful, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I often say it's like, maybe you want to be president of the United States or maybe you want to be president of the PTA or you just want to like, you know, be president of your family better, (laughs) like whatever it (laughs) is, whatever level you're working on. This isn't something that's like, yeah, that is limited by sort of what your scope is or what you're trying to change. So I want to hear about the, the kind of four... Pillars of your framework. But I do want to ask first, because I think you talk about this. Like we talked a little bit about how this faux self care harms kind of women in general. But do you think that it has a sort of maybe different, maybe related, but kind of specific harm for other marginalized people, women of color, sort of people who are dealing with another kind of marginalized identity as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Because if you are somebody who, you know, just taking like black women in the workplace in particular, one of the first tenant or principle of real self-care is setting boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. But if you're a black woman in corporate America, when you start setting boundaries, you're going to be called the angry black lady, Mm -hmm. right? And that's real, right? You will be penalized, right? You know, we hear things like imposter syndrome, right? Which in actuality is really just oppressive, toxic environments Mm -hmm. (laughs) that have seeped into our Internal psyche into our brains, right? And if you're somebody who is constantly made to feel that you're not worthy of taking up space or that you're less than or that you need to prove your existence or your right to take up space, then you're absolutely going to be fighting even harder. You know, for me, it was interesting in writing this book because my parents are Indian, are from India. I'm an immigrant, brown, I'm not black right? And my dad's a physician. So I had a lot of privilege growing up. Mm-hmm. And I also had to contend with racism. I grew up in outside of Philadelphia in a pretty white suburb, mm-hmm. but I don't know the experience of black mm-hmm. women, right? I don't know the experience of indigenous women or queer folks, right? So I think that like what I was trying to do is really explain that in making these personal choices, the risks are higher. hmm because you have more to lose often when you're in a marginalized group, you probably have less of a social safety net. Your friends probably are also in somewhat precarious mental health positions, right? So you just, when something goes off, the fall is more risky Mm -hmm. and it's still equally as important to be thinking about real self-care as self-preservation when you're somebody who is in a marginalized group. I think that you need... like My solution, though, I think, and this is one of the things that we're trying to do at Gemma, is that I think you need a community of other folks Mm -hmm. who are in the same position as you. And you really need to be able to find allies and sponsors, especially in the workplace, especially if you're in corporate America. And that's why also the last tenant of real self-care is about power. And that if you are somebody who has privilege, and when I say privilege, I don't just mean like white people. I also mean like in the workplace, like if you have any like iota of power, right? That you give it back, right? That you're thinking about the people who look different than you and who have less than and are willing to step in and say something when bad things are happening or weird things are happening or someone says something, right? Like that we all need to be part of this community and moving forward together.
1: Yeah, one of the other things I think is that, this is part of the reason that like we can't ever tell anybody what to do. You have to figure it out for yourself is that part of, I think, internal self-liberation is figuring out with more discernment when you do need to keep yourself safe, right? If you are in a marginalized identity or you are in an unsafe situation or whatever. I mean, women also, you know, a privileged white woman can also experience being right. in danger from men or from violence. But part of the way that I think society fucks us up in the head and makes us stick with whatever we have and not make any waves is kind of being taught to believe that there's nothing better anywhere else either, right? Like that mm. sort of everywhere is as bad. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's not okay to ever take any kind of risk. And obviously, I think your risk calculus does have to be different if you are you know, a single mother who's a person of color supporting a couple of kids and you don't have a lot of economic wiggle room, or if you're like, you know, an heiress with a trust fund, like obviously your (laughs) situations are different and your risk tolerance is different. That's true. And it's also true that people have more resilience and possibility and capacity and potential, I think, than they often think that they do, which is like why I do what I do and what a lot of self-development work is about. And this sort of learned helplessness of like, I mean, I see this even in women who do have some economic and social privilege of like, yeah, well, you know, it's not like I can't speak up for myself or I can't like, you know, report the sexual harassment or I can't whatever because if I lose my job, then that's it. It's sort of everywhere's the same. There's nowhere better. I think this is this like, We generalize or universalize, right, in a way that is not always true. Like there are places, there are jobs where that's not going to happen to you. There are other relationships where somebody is going to pull half their weight or more than half their weight if they're my partner. There are (laughs) like, I mean, we split things and, you know, whatever. Anyway.
0: I, I have a partner that, like, that does all the cooking
1: and all the cleaning. Exactly. So I, I was going to say, he's with, <laughs> the kids are off school today. I'm here doing this. He's with the kids. I mean, they are his kids. So it's a little bit different, but yeah, I haven't washed a dish since he moved in. You know, I bring in the bacon, but just that, right. So That sort of internalized, learned helplessness of like,
0: everything's bad everywhere. You know, I might also call that cynicism, mm-hmm. you know, and, and hopelessness. Yeah. Right. I when you just,
1: I think like. Who taught me this and who does yeah. it benefit when I think this way? Yeah. Right. Like yeah. we think we're being realistic. Yeah. But I think that there's a way like optimism can also be part of realism. It's not always like realism isn't always cynical, it isn't always pessimistic. And I think there's a way in which we sometimes, I mean, I see maybe because I came from the social justice world, I see this way in which being aware of structural problems, if it's not balanced mentally, can become disempowering because then you are just sort of like, well, the patriarchy is everywhere. So there's nothing I can do. So I have to just deal with whatever shitty situation I'm in and I can't do anything to change it because everywhere will be like this. And that's not true.
0: Yes. So the other thing that I'm thinking is that what you're describing is self-efficacy from a psychological standpoint. That's the term that we use. So self-efficacy, is sort of similar to hopefulness in that hopeful hope is different than optimism, right? So it's sort of like exactly what you said. There's lots of stuff that is out of my control. But are you able to still remember and act with agency for the small part that is in your control? Or do you just completely fall over and give up and feel like, well, it's all shit. So there's no point. When you were kind of describing this, it reminded me of, you know, in my practice, like I was saying, you know, all of my patients live in Washington, DC are like really highly educated. You know, DC is a very high cost of living area. Even something like how to spend your money as a family Mm -hmm. is a decision-making process that real self-care fits into and I think Mm -hmm. hits on a lot of what you're talking about. So for example, because I take care of a lot of women who are in that new postpartum period, Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about sleep protection and how protecting your sleep is actually preventative for postpartum depression. So the idea of saying, okay, I'm going to have a partner conversation with my partner and I'm going to say actually we either really need to have our parents come to stay with us mm-hmm. or if that causes more <laughs> trauma, yes. right, right? We need to pay for a night nurse. To figure out how mm-hmm. we can do that, right? And I can't tell you the number of patients who are like, well, but you know that's really expensive, but then meanwhile they're like renovating their bathroom.
1: Oh my God. I have a story right. about a woman who told me that she was having, this is when I used to do one-on-one coaching. And so I would do like one-on-one consults. Mm-hmm. And I like coached this woman. For like, we went through the whole thing. She told me she was having panic attacks every day. So she like wanted to sign up. And then when I told her the price, which you know was a five-figure investment, it was a very small, high-end coaching program. She was like, well- you know, we're trying to build a second rec room. And I, and I was like, so you're gonna have a new rec room to have panic attacks in every day, (laughs) which between the rec rooms with the panic attacks, like it was like, because, but the rec rooms for the family, and this would just be for me, which like number one, inaccurate, because if your mother's losing her mind every day, that actually does affect the family, but also you are part of the family, right? Like women are socialized to spend money on the other members of the family or to like invest or care more about them. But then like you're somehow not part of the family. And yes. Like your mental health doesn't matter.
0: Yes. Well, and it gets to, you know, when I talk about the martyr mode, right? When you're in that martyr mode, it's so compelling. It's almost addictive, right? Yeah. To be in that place where you, nobody's taking care of you. And, but I think it also is about how our culture doesn't value the internal work, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, we totally devalue any type of caretaking work, Mm -hmm. right? And so like whether it's a coaching or whether it's seeing a therapist, whether it's seeing a psychiatrist, right? All these different things, spending money on something that is for you internally, right, which will lead to outward manifestations in the future, but that you don't know what those will be. You don't know what those are. And to say like, okay, I'm going to spend money on my own insides. It's just so scary and feels really risky, I think. But it is so sad then when you see it coming out in all these other places, the money, I mean, coming out in all these other places that, you know, are maybe more performative or feel like it's, you know, as a woman where you feel like you don't have the agency in your own family to kind of speak for what you really want and what you need. I think yeah, it's all, think it's the you internalized yourself, right? Like yeah, if you really it's the internalized stigma. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. If you feel convinced yourself that
1: this is a good use of money, you'll speak up for it. But yeah women have this, you know, this sort of like, I shouldn't have this problem. I should be able to do it myself. Other people can do it themselves. Right. I need to, I mean, I feel like a lot of people especially seem to ha- have this thought of like therapy is great for other people. I do think <laughs> should get therapy. just like not me. I need to right. solve my own problems. Mine right. are shameful, but other right. people totally. Okay. So can you give us, I know we've talked about a couple of the pillars. Can you just give us kind of an overview and then we can talk about how people can find your book and learn. Yeah. The- yeah.
0: The- so there's four principles of real self-care and I always like to caveat and say, these aren't anything revolutionary. These are things that everybody talks about. The reason that everybody talks about them is because they're really hard to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily think that there's like anyone expert that has some magic secret sauce about any of these things. Like, again, there's no magic cure. There's no easy shortcut. I think really it's about finding the community of folks Mm -hmm. that sort of speak to you and whoever the people are that you kind of like to listen to or read that they're coming from sort of a space that resonates with you but again it's not anything like magic in any of these principles Be so the yourself, first principle by magic <laughs> <laughs> so the first principle is boundaries mm-hmm. boundaries and dealing with guilt because step 1 in decision making is you need to know where you start And the other person begins. So my take on boundaries is a little bit different. I think of boundaries as the pause. Mm -hmm. So boundaries are when you take that space and you actually stop and pause and then you decide. I can say yes. I can say no. I can negotiate. So a boundary isn't always a no, right? Mm -hmm. And in the book, I talk about how this came to me when I first joined the faculty at George Washington University. My mentor took me out for lunch and she was like, you know, Pooja, you don't need to answer your phone. You can let it go to voicemail and then you can listen to what they want and then you can decide. Right. Right? And that was just like this revolutionary moment for me where I was like, oh, I can decide. Mm -hmm. I can pause. So that's boundaries. And then of course you have to learn to deal with the guilt, right? Because you're always going to feel guilty when you pause, whether you say no or whether you negotiate. So dealing with the guilt is a big piece. And there, my framework is that we can't get rid of the guilt Mm -hmm. because the guilt is the internalized toxicity Mm -hmm. from our external oppressive environment. So the guilt is always going to be there. It's just like what you need to do is just have like a volume dial Mm -hmm. and just know that it's background noise. It's not something that you need to have be your moral compass. I think even the way in the, like, in the way
1: that people listen to this podcast understand, I think that's like, you can change your relationship to the thought and feeling. I mean, I think you can also change your thoughts to reduce that guilt. I mean, I certainly feel a lot less guilty saying no to stuff than I used to, but I think that idea of like, it's just there and you can do it anyway, is like you're changing your relationship to that feeling before you even worry about whether you can reduce it or not. Like, as opposed to being like, oh my God, the feeling means I did the wrong thing. I'm bad. Now I got to ruminate about this or go
0: change my mind or take it back or whatever else. Right. Like you're creating space between the feeling or the thought and you're taking action or doing anything else. So it's what we call cognitive diffusion. Like you're creating that space. So the next step or the next principle is self-compassion, mm-hmm. which, you know, is exactly what you just they described, Kara. Like, yeah. right. Like, yeah, like just developing a new relationship with your thoughts mm-hmm. and your feelings. It's not about like mantras and affirmations. Mm-hmm. It's more about just understanding that you have the capacity to talk to yourself differently mm-hmm. and unfuck your brain, right? <laughs> The third principle is getting clear on your values. And that is, I think, the hardest one because I don't know if you experienced this with your clients. Whenever I ask somebody, Well, what do you really want? What do you really value or care about? People get so angry. Like they're just like, Pooja, do you know how much stuff I have on my to do list? Like, how dare you?
1: Yeah, I think people don't know. We actually do this. The last time I taught like a challenge, I did a challenge about like claiming your authority. And one of the things I taught was around decision making, like that the reason that we second guess so much is that we don't have some metric to use for making decisions. We're just sort of crowdsourcing and going by our feelings. I mean, like, I don't know, I feel bad, must be the wrong one, right? So to like articulate your values, but most people have never done that. They have not sat down and been like, these are my values. I can use these to guide decisions. And I think that's partly why like women aren't taught figure out what your values are. You can trust those women are taught. Like you don't even know how to eat or dress or walk or (laughs) wash your face. You need experts to tell you all of that. Right. You certainly can't be making a big decision by yourself. I mean, no, you don't even know what colors look good on you without someone telling
0: you. (laughs) Right. Right. You don't even know what you want for dinner. So like, (laughs) exactly. Right. And so in the book, I have like different thought exercises Mm -hmm. to help kind of come to values from like an indirect standpoint. Mm -hmm. So one of them is like imagining that you're throwing a dinner party for yourself and sort of like, it's pretty easy to know that every single person on the planet is going to throw a completely different dinner party. Right. And there's no one right dinner party. Right. And so getting clear, finding those values, like, because a value is always an adjective or an adverb, Mm -hmm. right? You can't, your values can't be, I value my family. That's a noun. Like We all value our family. Great. Right. Awesome. Like not helpful. (laughs) So that then is how, once you get clear on some of those words, the real self-care work then is like trying to thread those values again Mm -hmm. into your big life decisions. Mm -hmm. And then principle four is that, that this is actually power, right? Mm -hmm. That unfucking your brain (laughs) is about power, right? Is about understanding that yes, there's so much that's out of your control. But there is a lot that is in your control, and like being willing to take the risk to start to make small changes in the parts that are in your control. And, you know, I think one of the last things I want to say is also that because of my personal journey, I always like to remind folks that like the right answers are going to take time, and there are going to be thousands and thousands of right answers. Mm And it's right answers, right? Because it's yeah, thousands well. and thousands of small decisions mm-hmm. to get you out of that hole. It's usually not one dramatic decision, right? Have and I
1: think that one of my favorite memes is that it's a painting of like, I think it's like an Arthurian legend woman with a sword. But anyway, the text is like, would you like small, repeatable steps that produce change. And the other one is like, no, I just wanted one active dramatic fantasy or something. You know, some <laughs> right, it's where, right. I'm not doing it justice, but it's basically like that. It's like, no, I just want like one big fantasy change as opposed to like small daily actions that will actually right. change their life.
0: Right. Small daily actions that are so boring
1: so boring. so this boring my, and mundane. This one of my keys for knowing if you have the right thought mm-hmm. is if you set a goal and you set your minimum baseline, if your brain is like, that's too small
0: and dumb, it doesn't matter. I'm like, great. That's a good, that's level. the one that's where to pitch it. Yeah. Right. Right. I love that. Exactly. It's like, it's really boring. It's not dramatic, but that's how change actually happens. Yeah. And I mean, I find that to be like, some people might say, oh, that's really depressing. I actually find that to be hopeful because it's like, yeah. that means that you don't need to constantly put this pressure on yourself. Like you have to be doing something huge and dramatic and pick the right. You don't have
1: to quit your job and move to San Francisco. No,
0: no, you don't need to. And that usually that's usually the wrong answer. Like the right answer usually isn't to quit your job right. The second, maybe you quit your job in a year once you've done all that other stuff. Right. Right. So, yeah. And so that's why it comes back to power because so many of the exercises too are about looking at your relationships and Mm -hmm. whether that's like, your relationship with your nuclear family, with your parents, with your friends, in your workplace, right? And figuring out how to ask for what you want and what you need and let yourself have that. So, and so yeah. And with it
1: if people don't give it to you, right? I mean, I think right. we also were like afraid to ask because of that helplessness. It's like, well, if I ask and I hear no... Then I just have to live with the situation as opposed to like, well, then I'll figure out what to do then. Right. Then
0: you have plan B and then you have plan C and then you have plan D, right? And the work is to like stay engaged, right? Which is why like communities, whatever community it is, like, you know, I know Kara, you have a great community here and that's like something that it is helpful to be with other people who are trying to kind of do some of this process as well. Because otherwise it can be really lonely, I think. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So good. All right. Can you tell us where people can find the book and read and learn more? Yes.
0: Yes. So the book is called Real Self-Care. It is available in audiobook that I narrate. So it's on Audible. It's also everywhere that you can buy books. So amazon, bookshop.org, all the places. And you know, if you enjoy listening to your books, it was really fun narrating it. I had never narrated a book before. So that was a nice little project. So you can get it anywhere that books are sold. And I am also on Instagram at Pooja Lakshman. And then my company, Gemma, G-E-M-M-A, we are at gemmawomen.com. We will put all that in
1: the show notes too. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: This was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Cara. Thank you. All right, my chickens. And if you want
1: more community around this kind of real self-care, don't forget that we are doing the Stop Second Guessing Yourself Challenge. Starting very soon, April 17th to 21st, text your email to 997 plus one three four seven nine nine seven one seven eight four. And we'll ask you for the code word. And the code word is trust. So you just text that back or go to unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash trust. We're gonna be learning all about how second guessing leads to trying to seek validation, people pleasing doubting your decisions, regretting your decisions. I'm going to teach you how to stop doing all of that. And we are going to have an amazing community. We will have a pop-up Facebook group so you can meet other people doing this work and you can get extra support. I'll be jumping in there. My clutch coaches are going to be in there a lot. Our amazing community manager, Anna, will be in there. So it is exactly that kind of community to connect to and do this work in that we were just talking about. I will see you all there.